So we are, we are thrilled to have you all here. Welcome to the second panel of the day uh, in Pigot. Uh, my name is Brady Walkinshaw, and I'm the CEO of Grist.org, the environmental media, national environmental pe media publication, and also have the pleasure of facilitating this track here all day on politics. So thank you for being here. Um, and just to make sure you're in the right place, uh, the name of this panel is We Disagree and That's Okay. So welcome to We Disagree and That's Okay. So it's never easy to talk about an issue you care deeply about with someone you disagree with. Now, in today's political climate, it might be especially hard. And in this workshop, we'll explore how you can approach a charged discussion to lead to better understanding. So I'm going to introduce the, the three panelists here and the two moderators. First of all, we have Warren Etheridge, who is the founding faculty of the film school helping filmmakers translate their stories from screens big and small. Warren also founded the Red Badge Project to help combat veterans work through PTSD through storytelling. As a story finder, well, he's conducted over 3,500 interviews. So the next person on the panel, uh, who we will also applaud for, is Mozart Gruyere. And he's the, executive, he's the executive director of 21 Progress, and he provides leadership development training programs that empower emerging leaders. And he's also a professional writer and speaker, sharing work at conferences and leading universities like MIT and Brown. So welcome, Mozart. Our next panelist is Bo Zhang, who conducts little experiments in collective belonging and writes about them at the Bramble Project, which is a, a local blog. Her customary focus is on the civil and social dynamics surrounding urban development and change. So welcome, Bo. And our two moderators are from a wonderful new publication in Seattle called The Evergrey, uh, which you should all register for and get the newsletters from. Uh, but we have Monica Guzman, one of our moderators. She's the co-founder and director of Evergrey. Uh, she was a former Neiman Fellow at Harvard and a columnist at the Ta Seattle Times, GeekWire, and the Daily Beast. Uh, so this is Monica here. And then beside her, we'll introduce our moderator. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and then we also have another terrific moderator from Evergrey, Anna-Sophia Knopf, who's the storytelling producer at Evergrey. And she's published work in The Stranger, Seattle Globalist, Puget Sound Business Journal, and perhaps most importantly as a former fellow at Grist, which is wonderful. So thank you all, and I, I finally want to thank our sponsors for this panel, um, none of, without whom none of this would be possible, and those are the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Killinger Foundation, and then the sponsor for this politics track is Uber. So welcome, panel, and I look forward to the discussion. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, uh, for being here. Just by virtue of your being here, uh, you're signing up you know, to hear about and think about and reflect on one of the most difficult sort of 10,000-foot view topics and things that we're dealing with as a society, which is disagreement across division when things feel like they really matter. Um, so first off, I want to just say some things off the bat about what you can expect from the session and maybe what, what you can't. Um, we're not going to be talking about the substance of divisive issues, uh, these touchy topics. We're going to be talking more about the mechanics, the how of maybe how you could possibly find ways to overcome them, still make human connections, still have conversations, even when those conditions 
can be incredibly difficult. So to say things, you know, to say a couple things just right off the bat, first of all, all of this is really, really hard. Um, having kinds of conversations that are productive past certain barriers is not something everyone needs to do and not something everyone should be pressured to do in every situation. We're all processing lots of good and different perspectives from a lot of different people right now, and uh, it's just gonna be a personal decision. And there's more, more to say on this. Yeah, and that goes to say <clears throat> that in these conversations, which are super difficult, which can get highly emotional so quickly, that if you feel like the person you're talking to or people you're talking to are denying your identity, your humanity, you are under no reason obligated to continue that conversation. We wanna get that very clear right off the bat. And we're go but that being said, we're gonna be approaching these topics today with a bit of lightheartedness when things can feel so heavy. And I'm really excited for you to participate. Uh, so yeah, so remember that the tips we're going to be talking about today are more suggestions that you can take with you and use whenever you feel is appropriate, but not by any means feeling obligated to use them, you know, in all cases, etc. Um, but I want to start by just taking the pulse of the room a little bit. Um, how many of you are on Facebook? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I think we've reached that point. Uh, how many of you have sense yourself changing the way you engage on Facebook because things have gotten more tense and touchy. Okay, that's, that's like 80% of you at least. So I think this is a universally applicable discussion uh, that I hope we're about to have. So we'll, we'll start off um, asking our amazing panelists, I'm so excited they're here with us today. Um, why, just why is this interesting? Why are you here? Why are we even having a conversation about conversations? Um, and tie it to what you do, right? Your experience. I'm going yes, please, Warren. Uh, I consider conversation a gift. Uh, it's one of the few things that I always benefit from, even when a conversation uh, is fraught with peril. Um, I was—I took an Uber over here today because I was dreading the idea of parking, and it was clear that it was gonna become a political conversation, and that was the moment I checked to see if the door locks uh, from the driver's uh, seat. Uh, <laughs> yet at the same time, I, I was really energized because I thought these are the conversations I love to have. Um, I always approach conversation thinking, I already know what I think. I already know what I believe. I don't benefit from repeating what I know and believe. I really benefit from hearing what others have to say. So I like to wade into the difficult. I like to wade into the controversial because I know that I'm gonna benefit uh, in some way, learn something, and possibly change my mind, and maybe at the same time help somebody else see something in a new light, and that to me is thrilling. Uh, well, so I spent the last year facilitating a conversation across the red-blue divide, but actually I spend most of my time thinking about, is this better? Okay. So I spent, I spend most of my time actually thinking about a political divide that ha we have just within Seattle, which is pro-development and anti-development. And in the last year, after spending this time facilitating this online conversation, I've started to think about problem solving in terms of urgency. By the way, can you, can you back up and just tell us a little more about that conversation you facilitated? Oh yeah, sure. So, so basically the, the, the conversation across the red-blue divide was 24 participants 
12 Hillary voters, 12 Trump voters. Um, it happened pretty much online. In the initial design, it was that people would post together in this online forum and then hopefully call each other in response to each other's posts. As it turns out, people don't actually call each other and they just ended up spending the entire time online in Facebook. And actually, by the end of the year, I left Facebook because I realized after talking to everybody on the phone, there's just no replacement for a voice-to-voice -voice conversation. <laughs> Glad we agree on that. Um, so in terms of urgency, what I've been thinking about is that when we have conversations with people who think differently from us, there's a couple different levels of urgency. The highest urgency is I need to convince you to vote a certain way or I need to convince this developer to change their design because this is happening right now. I need you to do something for me, convincing. Ratchet down in urgency and then there's solving our problem together, right? Like affordability is everybody's problem so let's get together developers and local activists and figure this out. Ratchet down in urgency from that and it's just we're two human beings on this planet together. The thing about urgency is that it makes it a lot harder to solve the problems we're trying to solve because a lot of the problems we're trying to solve are nonlinear. So I've been really interested in this relationship building beyond problem solving because that creates the structure that enables us to actually solve problems when they come up. Um, I think what really brings me to like this conversation is a few years ago, um, I was working in upstate New York in public housing in a neighborhood that has predominantly black folks, um, cash poor black folks. And um, I worked for a hospital and we were working to address health disparities, particularly cancer prevention. And um, we had a group, about 10 folks. Um, some of them were veterans. Uh, some of them had undergraduate degrees, even although they were working in, uh, living in public housing, which I think a lot of folks were confused by. Some of those folks were immigrants and refugees. Um, and as we were starting, these group of folks had decided that they wanted to um, prevent cancer in, in their community. There started to become this conversation, well, I'm a veteran, so I deserve to you know, be the front of the line every single time. And then folks who are immigrant refugees were like, well, I've you know, traveled very far and come from a war-torn country, so I deserve to you know, uh, spend a little bit more time. And some of the folks who had been living in the t city all their lives, they're like, this is my neighborhood, right? And then um, there was a critical moment where um, you know, we're having this conversation and we said, well, how many of you have lost someone to cancer much too soon, right? And all of a sudden that kind of shifted that conversation and we were able to um, go a little bit deeper. And so in the work that we do at 21 Progress, where I work at now, we're oftentimes working with young folks who are trying to figure out how do we you know, make bathrooms more accessible for trans and queer folks? How do we make sure that when a black person gets shot by the police, that someone cares? And, and all of them, uh, all those students that we predominantly work with, whether it's internships or programs, care deeply about those issues, whether it's climate change or racial justice, and those similarities um, are very similar to that experience I had in New York. And so for me, it's like, how do we bridge that gap so we can kind of point in the same direction? And that by pointing in the same direction, it's not, hey, we should save the ocean and not the forest. It's that, no, we need oceans and forests all together, just the same way we need racial justice and trans justice and, and economic justice for all folks. And so I think that both for the issues that I care about as well as issues that divide us, you know, it's conversations that really bridge that divide. And kind of going back to what you said is also when we're face to face and we can wrestle with both this existential process as well as what we all care about as people.
used to it. I guess one of the reasons that I find these conversations so interesting is because I'm someone who struggles with having difficult conversations. For me, it's very easy to get emotional and to get angry. And I feel like for lots of people, especially right now when we're talking politics, especially in these times, um, that gets really hard. And it's hard to not lash out when someone is so politically opposite to you. Um, so honestly, I'm, I'm really interested in learning from everyone here. Um, and I don't know, maybe feel like you can relate to me a little bit if you're just like also that person in the room, so. So actually, did you all get little cards from us when you came in? Does that, did that get distributed? Is that a yes? No? Some did, some didn't. Okay, uh, we'll make sure you get them. They're not in the bags. They were um, maybe supposed to be handed out as you guys walked in, but maybe that's a little... They ran out. <sighs> yeah, they're, they're cards. On the back of those cards are some of the tips we're going to talk about today. And I want to flag that we're not just going to be up here talking you know, at you and with you the whole time. We're actually going to take the last 15 or so minutes. Awesome. Uh, 15 or so minutes to let you all practice some of what you have learned by pairing you off uh, based on some things that you find you disagree with uh, with somebody else. But again, these will not be touchy political topics. They will be uh, somewhat more lighthearted, but still able to practice some of what you hear. So pay attention, because it's fun. Um, if you a have a card, talk to somebody who doesn't have right. a card. No, and we will go over them. So the, the cards aren't even comprehensive. So sorry we ran out. <laughs> That's kind of a bummer. Uh, do you want to take us through maybe the first tip or another question? Um, sure. Give me one second. Um, yeah, so basically our first tip here is pay attention to the context of your conversation. A context of any conversation that can launch into debate is incredibly important. Um, you you want to keep in sight, can both of, both of us in this conversation feel welcome and connection? And this is something that comes from Bob Staines, who is um, someone well-versed in talking about debate and how to interact with other people. Um, in addition, um, you want to be coming from a genuine place. Um, can you be genuine in your speaking, and can you be genuinely listening to the other person? You can't, can you take a step back and not just want to prove your point? And I think that's a really smart thing to keep in mind. So um, where have you seen in your work, any of you, uh, this sort of an action, this idea that in order to have a productive conversation, you have to, you know, in, in Bob's words, um, feel welcome and connected so that you are able to be genuine in your speaking and generous in your listening. How can that context be created? Just what are your thoughts as you hear that? Jump in. Uh, I think one of the things that we make a mistake uh, with conversation about is that you need to allow enough time and the right space for it that often we, we take the bait of a conversation at the worst possible moment or in the worst possible situation. If you want to have a conversation, it's something that deserves a little bit of a sacred space in my mind and the time that, me, that, that indicates that you are willing to listen and hear this thing out through the end. Uh, so my biggie is just make sure that you're not having a quick random conversation where somebody feels like they have to rush to get all their points in or you feel that charged about it, but actually create time and space and ideally face-to-face -face conversation because that's what is most successful in my mind. 
Yeah, when I, um, when I did Between Americans, which was that conversation across the divide, I framed it as my assignment was at the end of the year to tell the story of how the year went. And it was a real learning process throughout that time to not spend too much time trying to fix the story and just let it be. And what came out of that, kind of what you're saying with the time and the space, is, and, and don't get me wrong, I tried to fix a lot of things, right? I tried to make sure that people, you know, I really wanted people to get to understand each other, and that wasn't really the outcome. But it was a totally different, really beautiful outcome, which was just the truths about why it's so hard for modern Americans to connect. And that was really valuable. And so I think to your point, regardless of the outcome of the conversation, there's a truth that emerges that's useful if you listen for it. I mean, I think one of the pieces about you know making it welcome is that I think sometimes when we're having um, really complicated political conversations, we allow the person who's um, speaking that we may be oppositional to to become the epitome or the personification of you know the problem, right? But they they are who they are, and they are not the epitome or the the person the of like poverty, right? Like they're not like so pro people being poor, like they're not the source of it, they, don't, they haven't created all of it all by themselves, and really just kind of reckoning with the fact that to create it welcome, and if you do want to change that person's opinion, that it really starts from a place of first welcoming you know, who they are as a human being first, and then having a conversation that is personal, um, and that is personalized, because a lot of times when we have conversations about politics, it's very theoretical, and we're not talking about a hungry child, right? We're actually talking about policy or a law or what we disagree with. We're not talking about, you know, what does it mean to be hungry? Have you ever been hungry before? And so I really think that if you can make it warm and welcoming and making sure that you're seeking a more personal connection, it can be more meaningful for folks. I, I, I love what Mozart is saying, is I, and I think it's spectacular if you always think of it as individuals and, and person to person. And the second you drop an agenda going in, uh, the second you drop uh, the idea that you're going to prove something, uh, you actually start speaking one to one, and that's when the magical things happen. So I love that. And I'll, on that point, in terms of agenda, I think if you do have an agenda, right, and you're on Facebook and you, you know, comment back, like, is that going to shift policy, right, <laughs> or is it just going to make you feel good? Because, because I think if it's going to make you feel good, then I think you should position it in, that, in this appropriate place in terms of personal. But if it, if you believe this person is a decision maker, like a political official or something like that, then that's a different kind of conversation. And I think what I'm seeing on social media is that we are having conversations with our neighbors as if they're a lobbying group and not, you know, someone that mows the lawn every day <laughs> and that is very annoying. And so I think just figuring out, you know, what is our goal and how much influence that person literally has is very important so that we don't attribute too much influence on your cousin that lives two states away. And since Mozart mentioned Facebook, I do have a story, and this relates to the content or the context of the conversation. So I, I told you the conversation happened mostly online for a year. At the end of the year, I talked to everybody on the phone. And here's, so one of the liberal participants talked about how, you know, she thought, she spent a lot of time thinking about what she was going to post on Facebook. You know, she, she really cared a lot about social equity, but she knew she was going to get too emotional about it, and she was worried about not being able to finish the conversation. So she decided to post about the environment. 
And then I started to realize just how much of what connects us as human beings exists in this silence that completely disappears on the internet. So then this conservative, talking about that exact same thread, says, hey, I remember somebody talking about, you know, she posted something about the environment, and I really think through my posts, like I think I started writing something and then I saved it in my notes and went back to it later, and I posted a response, and she posted something really thoughtful back, and then I just kind of dropped the ball, you know, it was like 4th of July, and I just never got back to it. And I was like, you know, man, I just really lost an opportunity to learn about something that I don't really know a lot about. It was just this totally lost connection that just disappeared into one meaningless word, unwritten word, right? So another tip, I think, is a good segue. Um, the power of people's experiences and stories to help explain their views is pretty phenomenal. So one quick thing about something the Evergrade did. Uh, back in March of last year, we took 19 people from King County on a 10-hour road trip to Sherman County, Oregon, uh, which is a county of 2,000 people, very agricultural, um, and they voted exactly opposite of King County in the presidential election. And we thought about context really, like a lot. <laughs> and so the first thing we did when we got there on our bus was to give kind of a housewarming gift and then they took us on a tour of Sherman County on a bus, and then we shared a meal, and then we started talking. And the questions that we suggested people use to start bringing up tense topics, probably one of my favorites because it seemed so effective, was what in your experience led you to this position? And suddenly it's less about the position itself or what you've all been saying, you know, we, we, we see the other person as a poster child for everything we don't like and hate and think is wrong with the world. We see them as a human being. Um, and in fact, something else we did was before, uh, people paired off and before they got talking about the tense things, we asked them to share a favorite memory from their childhood with each other. And that was a way to just remember your human beings. Now, that we did largely because these people were strangers. When you're dealing with people you already know, you can probably skip some of those steps, but the idea of bringing your story, your experiences, and that curiosity about how someone else got to where they are can unlock a lot of things that you might not have thought about when the issue is a lot of thought pieces on the internet. Um, any thoughts on that, the, the idea of offering story um, and that kind of context, just in your experiences? What in your experience has led you to? <laughs> Well, so Krista Tippett in her podcast on being, she always starts with the question, tell me about the spiritual and background of your childhood. And what she says is, she does that partly because she wants to know and partly because that actually just puts people in a different mental space. So yeah, when I talked to folks on the phone in these final interviews, I started with what is the political background of your childhood? And it just put people, it puts people in a different frame of thinking. It's really helpful. A uh, quick story uh, of my own is I didn't speak until I was six years old. And when um, a teacher finally got me to speak, she said, why haven't you spoken until now? And I said, because I didn't think anybody would listen. And I think that's a common uh, sense out there, not just for, for me, but for uh, all people nowadays, is that we rarely feel like we're being heard, that our stories are being heard. Uh, so my desire is to, to let people tell their stories because it's the stories that and the experiences that really matter. 
Uh, Carl Jung said that the desire to reveal is greater than the desire to conceal. And I find that true all the time, whether it's convicts or combat vets or abuse survivors, you name it, people want to tell their story. What is missing is the idea that somebody is there to listen. And so if you open yourself up and say, tell me your story, you'll be amazed by what you hear. And my, my tip for you, for anybody here, is a great uh, practice is go home and if you have a, a loved one, a family member, a friend, a roommate, what have you, ask them how their day was and ask them three follow-up questions about that. You'll be amazed how rarely we actually follow up. And when you do, you'll see that there are stories after stories after story. I think just to move forward a little bit, um, one thing that Bo has talked about, and I think when we talked about this when we were um, talking about Between Americans, um, I think it's a good um, thing to take a step back from a difficult conversation, to reassess what are our goals of this conversation? What place are we trying to get to? Are we trying to get to a place of mutual understanding, or am I trying to win this argument? And I think that that is, again, especially now, that's what I keep saying, that that's something that's so important to think about, um, is are we trying to win or are we trying to understand and hopefully come from a different, to show a different perspective? And it's also especially important because a lot of the political argument that gets modeled for us on TV is a really different goal, which is the goal of sounding smart. So uh, we'll, we'll break for our exercises actually pretty soon. Um, but I want to, I know, this went quickly, you guys. What in Always the world? Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to round up uh, some of, you know, what we've said, but also some of the other tips that we've collected. Um, and everyone feel free to jump in um, as, as we go through this. But real quick, uh, do remember the power of fear. Uh, in a conversation when you disagree, your adrenaline may start to go up. You may start to feel your body kind of tell you something threatening is happening. And fear can do amazing work. Having you hear something that is intended one way as intended somewhat malevolently. So always be, be aware of, of those reactions in your own mind. See where you can turn trigger opportunities into learning opportunities. Now this is one of those that is so dependent on whether you feel welcoming, welcomed and safe and connected in a context. But for example, when you want to say, I disagree, or worse, <laughs> um, you can say, that's interesting, that's surprising, tell me more. How did you get to that? And that may hurt to say. It may be the last thing you want to say. But like Warren said, it could pull more interesting information and lead to new openings. And uh, I like this tip comes from Peggy Holman, uh, who I want to credit for being an awesome facilitator who does great work here in Seattle. She, she says, you know, do express things that hurt to hear from the other person. And, and I love this tip because it may sound like you're just supposed to be a robot, like a curiosity robot that doesn't bring her heart into the conversation and doesn't express when things get really difficult. And, and her example is, um, you know, when, when you feel somewhat triggered and you, you feel that heart rate go up, um, see if you can wait until the point when you've really identified a specific source for the trigger, then share it with the other person and communicate how it feels. So she says, for example, 
if you've identified that you're triggered because something the other person says makes you believe that it hurts people, you can say, you know, it, my heart kind of hurts when I hear something that I believe causes suffering. And that puts the ball in the other person's court to hear that from you and see if you can reach a deeper level, right? Um, and again, feel free to jump in. Yeah. I, I just want to say, as a, as a uh, New York Jew, judgment comes easily uh, to me. <laughs> but, because uh, it's a time saver. But in... Uh, <laughs> but in conversation, I try to... Uh, be the least judgmental version of myself possible. There are a lot of things that can wash over me and there may be things that offend me. Uh, there may be things that I, I disagree with strongly, uh, but I always feel like I have time to, to look at that and consider that after the conversation. I'll never get another chance at this conversation, so I'm gonna shut off all my judgment for the duration of the talk, if that makes sense. And that makes it a lot easier for me to sort of bliss out during the conversation knowing, I'll get my chance later. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Communicating via We're facial expressions, not very strong with it in my book. Um, but something Warren said, and I think where we're headed, is good opportunity to bring up that particularly now, um, you know, disagreement has evolved to feel uh, a lot more personal because uh, we're, we're really discovering for each other power of identities and sometimes when someone disagrees with us in a certain way, depending on who we are, it can feel like an affront to our identity. It can feel like you're, you're denying who I am. And I wanna, I wanna give you, on a- You don't a, want me to exist. Right, I wanna, right, like I wanna give you a chance to sort of elaborate on that because it's a great point and, and open it up to our panel. Yeah, I think with conversations here, especially, um, I mean, we see these things we hear from our activist community. We have, who are having difficult conversations, who are on the forefront of these very, like, heated issues, um, where sometimes we hear things that just feel like, you don't think that I'm a person. You are dehumanizing me. And I think that that is such an important thing to identify, and I think that also, if you feel safe, again, I think I just wanna emphasize the safety issue here, that if you feel safe and you can say like, look, like what you're saying to me right now, this is what I'm hearing and this, is, this hurts me. Do you understand that? And I think bringing that emotional side to these difficult conversations can be a help, again, if you feel welcome to that conversation, if you're there on mutual grounds. And sometimes you're not and it's important to identify that. So yeah, any, any thoughts from you on that? I think then we'll move to our exercises. Well, I think, I think kind of going back to that point, um, that's, that sometimes is a really good opportunity to know when you might want to exit a conversation. I think particularly around conversations around poverty and race, right? Um, it's important to kind of be aware of if there's like dynamics there. The example um, we were discussing before is that, you know, if you're having a conversation with your landlord um, and you rent, right? And they say, let's discuss the rent, right? And, and how much I should be paying. Um, that isn't necessarily an equitable conversation, right? Someone owns the property and someone doesn't. And so if you wanna have a conversation about the rent, you know, then 
ultimately, we already know in advance who the decider is, right? That person might be a part of a housing association, but at the end of the day, we kind of know who the decider is. And sometimes I think there's these instances, particularly now, where folks who might be non-black want to have conversations about black folks, right? And so for that black person, it's important, and for the person who might not be black, it's really important for that person to be aware of, is that if you're not having a theoretical conversation about something that you mutually are experiencing, that a lot of times it doesn't feel feel you know meaningful or fulfilling for that person the same way you know if poor folks are having cash poor folks are having conversation with folks with lots of wealth and they just say I'm just really trying to get to know you right that can be very very difficult not because there can't be a place of connection but if the conversation is pretty much saying the topic of conversation is the primary identity I see you as then that's not really a meaningful conversation where that conversation about rent may be about more so about living conditions right how do we make sure that the housing is something that we both enjoy both as a landlord as a tenant and if we're talking about equity or or I'm mean not equity but poverty you know how can we have a conversation about what does it look like to have living wage jobs right where everyone has a certain level of dignity not just a conversation of it must be so awful you being so distant from me right and so really I think also the framing that we oftentimes have in racial justice conversations or social justice conversations particularly in Seattle sometimes are framed where the person's whole identity is positioned and we say hey how do we get as many of those kind of folks in the room so that we can talk about them right and really how do we make sure that we create situations where people are not being pretty much subjects that we're utilizing as conversation tools but that we are having conversations where everyone is a person. And I think that's something that we should challenge ourselves on because sometimes representation can actually oversimplify um, someone's identity as a person. And it also goes back to the point of meaningfully listening to people mm -hmm. and actually hearing their stories and wanting to understand even a little bit of what their experience is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love what Mozart's saying, and that's a, that thing. Remember that you're speaking to individuals, not avatars or archetypes, which is our tendency. Nobody has to represent anything else. They're just a person. And with that being said, like if you're going into maybe a critical racial or equity or whatever conversation, and you think that at the end of the night, you probably won't feel bad in any way, that you'll probably be good or just wash it off or you know drink a glass of wine and be okay, that you probably don't have anything at stake if someone else is walking into that conversation and they feel like they could lose a lot, right? And so it's also, I think, important where you say, hey, why are these folks engaging me? Like if you feel like you have nothing to lose, then you're not actually about to have a critical conversation there has to be something at stake for both people. I mean, if there's nothing in stake for you, that means that you need to acknowledge that and say that out loud. Not because it's bad, but because that person is saying, my whole existence is on the line, you know? And, and I think that's just so critical um, in general, so. Thank you. All right, that wraps our conversation, but thank you all so much. That was really insightful exchange.